This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Again, when he showed up that night, what was he all really flustered and then he just completely tanked as well at the comedy store? Yeah, I mean, that, that was regular for him to tank. He always tanked, but he was he was more like Kramer that night than I'd ever seen him acting. He was real anxious. A lot of trouble, a lot of trouble. Like, <laughs> like it was almost free because I had gotten, re- you know, I loved the show. I watched every episode in the 90s. But, you know, you get used to these guys coming around the comedy store and you immediately start to get used to them as their person, as themselves. And but he was very animated that night. Very, huh, whoa. Big trouble, big trouble. Like when when Kramer fucked up, you know, it was kind of like that. That is the voice of comedian Freddie Lockhart, who has the notoriety of being the very last person to ever bring Michael Richards from Seinfeld on stage as a comedian the night he had a meltdown. And yes, you've tuned into another episode of Comedy History 101 where we school you in comedy. I am Harmon Leon. Hello, how is everyone? And as I mentioned, Freddie was the very last person to bring Michael Richards on stage the night he had his infamous meltdown. That date was November 19th, 2006. And here's something you don't know. The night Michael Richards had his meltdown on stage at the Laugh Factory became one of the very first viral videos and just ended the career of Michael Richards. He went on. He didn't go home. He went on to the comedy store and went and did another set. Somehow in his Michael Richards from Seinfeld mind, he thought, well, maybe I could win it back by having a really good set at the comedy store to wipe away that taste in my mouth of spewing racism on stage at the Laugh Factory. Freddie's going to talk about not only that, but Freddie was also there the night Joe Rogan confronted Carl Mencia on stage at the Comedy Store, which was another viral video, and he'll share tales of that as well. But before we jump into the episode, take time to like, subscribe, and comment on Comedy History 101, wherever you get your podcasts. Also, a few plugs. On Thursday, August 17th, 7 p.m. at Young Ethel's in Brooklyn, I'll be producing my show, That 80s Improv Challenge. So come and check that out. Also on Wednesday, August 30th, I will be co-producing our show, Comedy Bites AI vs. Human comedy roast bat at crystal lake in brooklyn which by the way freddie was also part of our show in los angeles at the ice house when we performed comedy bites he was the human part of the ai versus human roast battle and we will kick off our conversation talking about his experience being in a roast battle with an ai and now without further ado you're stupid. Everybody's so stupid. I'm trying to use the phone. Excuse me. Comedy History 101. Did you have fun in the AI versus human roast battle? What's your takeaway? It was very interesting. I did have fun. I always like a challenge like that. It was uh, it was pretty impressive that there was one burn that really got me. I was like, wow, I, I don't I think come back from that. So I was pretty impressed. It, it's kind of like the whole thing with AI. Everybody's a little scared. It's scary kind of right now, but think how good it will get. And so that's that's what I saw. But I, I do think that it's there's room for it. And it, I didn't feel threatened by it. Yeah. Do, do you remember the specific burn? That avalanche of them that just kept coming. There was like five or six. I was like, OK, all right, that's good. OK. 
And so I, I think that just showing its its ability to to be intelligent, showing the, the intelligence part, you know, it wasn't like Siri burnt me. It was a real burn. The nuts and bolts under the hood is I just took the information that you've had forwarded onto me and I fed it in many variations into chat GPT and that's what it generated. So I think, you know, people fear AI and, you know, it's a part of the strike, but it's it's a great creative tool, much like the camera was in the 1800s, as people feared painting would be replaced. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say there's probably some guy with a sketch pad but like this. Screw these cameras. They're no good, fella. Yeah, never catch on. No, I, I, I always look at it's something here to augment. People are always thinking it's here to take. But no, it's here to free up your mind so you don't. I don't have to maybe write the script 17 times. Maybe you only have to write it three times. Yeah, or just have a brainstorming buddy by your side. Yeah, like, absolutely. you know, if you can't be in a writer's room, you can like, okay, let me bounce some ideas off this tool. Right, absolutely. It's just when it starts to make you like, damn, why didn't I think of that? Oh, because I'm not AI. <laughs> but I could go to the uh, argument is you prompted it. So therefore you are, you do have a hand. You in are it. the author of it. Everything's derivative and it's AI, all AI is us. Is it us that learns on a way quicker scale, but we learn something from everybody else. Like that's what yeah. people I think don't get about it is like, all it's doing is learning. Yeah, it's grabbing from the internet. So are you, you know, so am I. So, you know, I didn't, I didn't invent the Beatles. I listened to them and then somebody inspired them. So it's just the thing that I think, you know, it's, it's, it could be here to help or it could be here to, if you're lazy, do the work. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I equate it to like, say in the days of, oh, it's like, it's a cheating, you're cheating, your joke writing. Well, so is a thesaurus in a book. Yeah, absolutely. You know, therefore, you know, oh, all right. You just looked up a dozen words that mean what you're looking for. So, yeah. oh, is that cheating or is that accessing a tool? Right. Like I, there was something I was even reading today. I was reading a copy for Microsoft for a voiceover and it was about AI and AI. I guess I shouldn't say too much, but basically it's an AI browser, a web browser. And they're like, you know, we'll go down the rabbit hole for you. And that's pretty much, you know, what they can do is, you know what you're looking for. They'll just find it that instantly instead of you having to fall down a rabbit hole reading articles from 1950 on for the thing you're looking for yeah i mean one way to look at it is it's just the new google you know it's a new yeah. way to google and access information quicker and then instead of yeah. like okay i'll have to read through 10 articles on x topic here this kind of scraped together all those 10 articles into one sort of you know thread and you can keep it honest too i'm sure every time it creates something it can immediately put some kind of stamp on it and say this, you know, in case a college kid's trying to pass it off as a paper or somebody has their own speech, this was created by AI. I'm sure there's a way the developers can do that. Yeah, my buddy worked at Adobe and basically Photoshop had built into it on the back end to tell that this was Photoshop. So, you know, they they built that kind of safeguard in. Oh, good. Hell <laughs> good, yeah. Good, yeah. Good. Well, the thing <laughs> is, it's good, though, to because if there's somebody who comes along and says, this is my original thing, we can be like, actually, we have the DNA of this. This was not you. <laughs> yeah. You know, you can tell, like, or you could say 30% of it was, was AI and 70% was you, therefore it was you. But if you said you didn't contribute any of this, then that footprint, I think, helps keep the art world honest. Again, there's always going to be cheaters. There's always going to be people looking for, you know, the easy route. But again, it's just like, at least in our show, we try to trumpet that, oh, this is AI and a human. Right. And it's what's <laughs> great about this, the, the comedy aspect of it, too, is I, I really do, is, as much as people are worried for the jobs, it's comedy is something, it's it's very human. It can You can find the, 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 the science to it. How often does the crowd laugh? You can find all those things, the technical things. Break but, down the analytics, yeah. Yeah, but I've always been a believer is you're born as funny as you're ever going to be. You just learn to get comfortable in front of strangers. That's it. So, you know, I've heard comics be like, I'm trying to get funnier. I was like, well, you're in the wrong place <laughs> because we came funny. You're learning how to be yourself up there. It's like a doctor saying, I'm trying not to be queasy around blood anymore. Well, I don't know if this is for you, bro. You know, like that's kind of a prerequisite is being funny or not being queasy around blood. So I don't feel like the AI thing is, it's not funny. You know, it's, it's, it's smart, it's clever, but it's not quite yet funny. And, 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 and funny, I mean, born funny. It, it can mimic funny and it, yeah. and it can do a good job even being better than a lot of comedians, you know, but the com the comics that rise to the, the top, the legends, you know, I don't see them coming for their jobs. 
So here's a pivot. Okay. Speaking of uh, legends, so welcome to uh, Comedy History 101. You would have learned, and when I was feeding the AI prompts, have a very particular connection to a very infamous place in comedy history. Could you just in, give us the one to two line paraphrase of what that event would be? Sure. I was going on in the main room at the comedy store one night and Michael Richards, Kramer from Seinfeld, was set to go on after me. And he was running a little late, but he finally gets in and he's like, oh, you're never going to believe it. I had some trouble. It's like, what kind of trouble? He's like, trouble at the Laugh Factory. I was like, oh, the Laugh Factory. Okay, whatever. What happened? Did you get heckled? And he's like, oh, yeah, it was real bad, real bad. I was like, hey, we all, we all, it's baseball. I give him the old speech. It's baseball. You know, if we're hitting 30%, we're going to the Hall of Fame. You don't got to worry about it. He's like, no, 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 it's real bad, real bad, real bad. I'm like, how bad can it be, you know? And then he's just not telling me. And then they start calling my name. I was like, dude. And the last thing I said to him is, I go, if nobody got it on video, there's nothing to worry about. And I go get on stage and I do my set. And then I bring him on. After I'm done, he bombs because he was a terrible comedian. But that was the last time he would ever do stand-up comedy again because it hit the press. Somebody did record it. And it was him dropping the in-bomb like a space bar. And he spared telling me because I'm half black. So... You know, it all made sense in the morning. I went, oh, that's why he didn't tell me. Yeah. And thank God somebody got that on video. Yeah. And before that, what was your opinion of Michael Richards? I mean, again, there's a specific thing in mostly like in L.A. where someone's famous and they want to parlay that fame. And they think it's sort of an easy pivot to, well, I'll just do a stand up comedy act like Stormy Daniels. With that direction. Right. You know, the great thing about comedy, it's a very humbling thing. And if you don't got it, you don't got it. And, and and he is a great comedic timing pratfall artist. He has his place in history, for sure. And when he would come around doing stand-up, guys like him and Judd Apatow, they're actually very nice. And Judd Apatow was a comedian before. And, and Michael Richards was back in the day. But they're not like us in the gym every single day. And and he was he was bad. And, and, and the thing is, he was fairly nice every time I spoke with him. But he was, no, he wasn't good at it because... You just can't fake comedy. You just can't fake it. And even if you're a star, that might even put you in arrears with the audience because they expect you to be great. But how many doors can you burst through on stage, you know? Yeah, I mean, like what I've seen is like someone's like from a sitcom and it's like maybe a wholesome sitcom and then they get the one minute to two minutes of, oh, look, it's them. And then they pivot into like, oh, did you know, like like a dirty version of their clean sitcom or something like that yeah and, you know that maybe takes three minutes and then what do they do the rest of the seven minutes so what what kind of stuff material was michael richards doing at that time trying some weird kind of like alt comedy like alt comedy was real big in the early 2000s and some people were great at it galifianakis was an alt comic there was brilliant ones and that's what it is he was just like acting out monologues and just being strange and, and, and things where i'm like Dude, this is hard enough when you're good, man. Why are you doing this? Why are you going up there? Like, they weren't, he wouldn't talk about Seinfeld. You know, people wanted to hear the Kramer thing. You're the most famous next door neighbor in television history. You're, you're not going to shake that. You either embrace it, you know, find a way to do stand up. I don't think he can just because he didn't start. He's not a real one like Jerry was, like Seinfeld. By real one, I mean practice and seasoned. And before you got famous, you were already an accomplished comedian. Whereas he was on a show called Fridays. He, you know, he had, he'd worked a lot. Uh, even in his 20s, just what didn't have it. And I've seen some actors kind of pivot to comedy and do okay. I'm not going to say Jeremy Piven's good, but he's not bad. You know, he's oh, not he's doing stand-up now? Yeah, he's been doing it for years now. And, and he at least humbles himself to do it, to do the late night spots, to take the licks, that kind of thing. I, I'm not going to say he's great, but he's not one of these actors who's making a hobby of it. Do you think like Michael Richards, did he have like that attitude of I'm a star Therefore, you should enjoy what I'm doing or not wanting to put in the homework when he would come on stage. And secondly, were people generally excited when they saw him, like, come up on stage? Yes. Yeah. So, uh, absolutely. So to see him, it was still, you know, he started coming around. I, I don't know. I guess, like, for a couple of years. And, yeah, absolutely. That's a huge TV star. People would would freak out. And he was always nice. You could tell he was strange. 
but he was always nice. I, I think the thing is, he's he is one of these kind of performance arts guys who happen to be a silly guy in a sitcom. But now he's like, you know, take me seriously. Now I'm doing this, you know, when in fact, that's not what they want. And so it was kind of almost like East Village in the late 60s kind of thing. Like they're not going for this dude. They, they want Kramer, you know, they 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 they, they want the falls and you know that kind of stuff and, and and again it just doesn't translate on stage very much if you're just falling down all the time and <laughs> and i think i think and he he also had a sitcom that they tried to parlay off of seinfeld that just didn't work out and he's he he's he like i was saying he's the most famous next door neighbor in tv history rest on that you know don't don't to me why solely that why go out there and look bad at something when you were great at something yeah, did he did he have that reputation like uh, in around the stand-up scene in LA of just losing his cool on stage? Was that like the first time that he snapped and he obviously lives in infamy? Yeah, I did, I don't know anybody to know that he was any sort of hothead ever. I had never heard that. If if anything he was so shockingly meek and and reserved compared to the Kramer thing, you know? He's not doing that spinning around. He's usually very enters a room very gently like hello, hi, hello. You know, he's very I, 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 th I'm not going to defend him, but that night was, to me, it was just, he's, the thing is, he was so bad at comedy that he hadn't taken those licks of a heckler before. So he tried to answer back with the worst, most disgusting, vile thing he could think of or say. And he did. And, and, and that's amateur comedy 101. You fold it. You, you, you couldn't be funny in the moment. So you went for hateful. And whether you mean those things or not, the fact that you said them, and they said them on tape, you know, I don't feel sorry for you. That was, but if anything, I just saw a really bad comic go to a really bad place because he just didn't have the skills to deal with people shitting on him. Again, when he showed up that night, what was he all really flustered and then he just completely tanked as well at the comedy store? Yeah, I mean, th that was regular for him to tank. He always tanked, but he was, he was more like Kramer that night than I'd ever seen him acting. He was real anxious. A lot of trouble, a lot of trouble. I get to it. Like it was almost free because I had gotten, re you know, I loved the show. I watched every episode in the 90s, but, you know, you get used to these guys coming around the comedy store and you immediately start to get used to them as their person, as themselves. And, but he was very animated that night, very, oh, whoa, big trouble, big trouble. Like when, when Kramer fucked up, you know, it was kind of like that. And, and that was the case. And then he did that that Letterman show with Jerry Seinfeld, and that was awkward. That was awkward. Yeah, was... they're lucky. It was like this. I think it was. I want to say it was like 2010 ish. I could be wrong. I hit. I'm here in my notes. It was 2006. I think November 20th. Jeez, that's how quickly time gets by. Oh, okay. <laughs> A lot of these times, the years get mixed up. So that makes sense. But I was, yeah, makes perfect sense. I was 27 years old. I was on a TV show at the time. I was getting great spots. And then he. Um, I, I wouldn't even say I befriend him. It's just when you start to go up and you're bringing him up or they're bringing you up, you, you know, you spend time in the green room. And I could just say he was a very quiet, nicest, nice person. And then when he did that, it was like, oh, dude. His comeback, like, say, on that thing when he was on the Letterman show with, with Seinfeld was, you know, mm. obviously the first go-to after being racist is saying, I'm not racist. Right. But when you get heckled by a heckler, there's so many other choices to go to right. Right. insult the audience. And yeah. he went for that. Yeah, which is telling. Moment. So I don't think that holds up. It, it makes me think, though, that, like, it, again, he went for the ugliest thing he could possibly think of. And to me, that shows that he thinks of it. So it yeah. was, you know, but he panicked. He hit the panic button, and then he just started saying that. But when you were going on, and, and he wasn't drunk, he I never saw him drink, you know. Like, to me... It, when comedy puts you in that corner, he showed his real self. And a lot of times I've been put in that corner, but you become funny. You start saying funnier things because how dare this person try to say I'm not fine. I'd rather say somebody called me the N-word than say I'm not funny on stage. And that's what somebody told him. You're not funny. And yeah. boy, did that just sit unright with him. And, and Jim Crow came out and took over the rest of his set. And, you know, what's lucky for him, that makes sense that it was 2006 because I going to say, in this even modern era, he would be way more lambasted than he was. He's, he got off lucky. I'm trying to use the phone. I think it was like, it was, you know, again, just look, look at 2006. It was like 
the shows that were big at the time was like Mind the Mencia and mm-hmm. where you, you could, you know, where, or at least he in his show kind of tote that line of like, right. you know, because if you look at that tape, it was just like, just did again. And it's like, oh boy, that's just still hits you like a punch. Is yeah. like he he gets an initial first laugh, and that seemed to give him encouragement to go that way. Do you think he was trying to be like a Carl's Mencia? Like, look, I'm Carlin. Like, I'm George Carlin. Who I could bring this back around to make some sort of point somehow, and and we're all gonna have a big laugh in the end. I think arrogantly he probably thought that this is hey, it's the '70s, man. We're all doing a little blow. You know, I can go to this place. You'll go there with me. No, not not for a second. And and again, I I always I, I just think that what he did, even if it was a bit, and and I've known white comics to do bits that would get them canceled today, you know. But it's just it was a different time, and so I think yeah, he probably did go think he was going to some artistic thing. I'm going to do this, you know, freestyle outrageous character, this indignant Southern. I'm mad as hell, Southern character, but. You know, it just again, it makes me wonder what what told you it was safe to go there. Like, who 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 did you think you were going to bring along with that? You know, the N word wasn't popular then either, <laughs> with the hard R. So that's why I'm just I I can't I, I I remember comics using it back then, but with context. You know, making fun of a redneck, something like that. But you know, to watch somebody self implode like that, it's funny because I'm a comedian. It's like, oh man, whew. But uh, at the same time, it's like it shed so much light as to why he was being so weird around me. And, you know, he was either ashamed for me to find out, embarrassed for me to find out that he said something like that, or for me to find out how he really is. I don't know. All I can say is he was always, you know, fairly mild-mannered, nice guy who just didn't do very well on stage. And and how long did it take you to get the news of the laugh actor? Was it immediately the next morning? And what was your initial reaction? That was crazy. That was the next morning, I remember, because this is when I started to realize how quick things can turn around. And this was, the, yeah, the next morning. And morning in comic terms. Back then I was 27, so I probably woke up at like fucking noon. But I woke up and it was a trending story on T- TMZ. You know, one of those things broke it. And it was like, oh, fuck. And I was like, I was there, man. I was there. And then when I saw what he did, I was just like, what the fuck? But it all made sense. Sorry, I'm, I'm trying to look up that exact day. Kramer do now. Yeah, it was 2006. God, I can't believe that was 2006. I still think I'm 20 something years old. That's the problem. I've been out here since 2000s. Yeah, I've been doing this since 2000s. The year 2000, I came out when I was 20. So I still think of things as oh, that was just three years ago, right? No, <laughs> no, old man. I mean, I think that was like the first viral video. Did you, everyone else, just go? It's it's over for him. That's that's game done. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I and here's the difference between today and yesterday. You wouldn't have a spot on Letterman after something like that. This shit would have hit the fan. No, everybody would have been shut down. No, no Seinfeld reruns. No nothing. They would have been like, off you go. Take him out of the show. I think it. it you know, it was crazy to see the viralness of it, but it was also like I think one saving grace of for him. M- Kramer is a household name. Cosmo Kramer is. Michael Richards isn't, you know. So that kind of helps too. When you go Michael Richards, you're gonna go from 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 Seinfeld. So I think that could be a saving grace for him to step out and just never be like if you don't watch Seinfeld. And enough time has gone by that Seinfeld's on all the time. They're not hiding him. Yeah, that that it was surreal to be in the ground. And I've been on the ground floor of a few viral moments that went viral. Uh, I was there the night that Joe Rogan told Carlos Mencia off. I was working the cover booth at the comedy store. Oh wow, yeah, yeah. Just, just for tell tell people that incident. Ari Schiffer was, was there, right? Yeah, Ari, um, Ari was there. Kirk Fox was there. They're all friends of mine still. Carlos gets off, and and, and you no, know, uh, Carlos is bringing I think Kirk Fox on, and then um, Joe Rogan yells like Carlos Mencia, or Ari did, and and Carlos was like what. And so Rogan got up there and they 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 started going at it like you see the video and I'm working the cover booth. So I've got a great seat. I'm calling comics who aren't there. I'm like, get out of here. It's happening. It's happening. And they knew what I meant because we hated we hated Carlos. He was such a bully. He would just come up there and I'm, I'm doing three hours of your wow. material. 
He's the like just just the worst of the worst on yeah, not just not a comic a, level, just a human level. Yeah, a terrible human, and he wasn't. He's not a steward of the art form. He doesn't care about it. He cared about himself. And Rogan was kind of like the sheriff around there. Like he didn't, you know, he was like, what? What has he been doing? And so Rogan gets up there, and at the time, neither one were huge names. They were known if you know comedy, but Rogan was on Fear Factor. Carlos was a big touring comic and just got the show. And they were going back and forth. And so that that it went on for more than half an hour. And my buddy Red Band recorded the whole thing. And he was standing right next to me and we were giggling. And He's the one who recorded the viral video? Yeah, Brian Red Band recorded it, uh, Joe's producer. And this was back then, Joe was always carrying a camera around. Um, and we were always hanging out, smoking weed. But this was the night. And, and I kept saying it's happening because this was building up for years. He was doing this to us for years. And we knew he was a joke thief and we knew he was bad. And it was kind of like, I always say the Al Capone thing, they got him on tax evasion. The joke they called him out on, the build the wall joke, 97,000 comedians wrote that joke on, on the same day. Bill Maher did that exact joke too yeah. <laughs> on his show. Like, that was and a low, it was, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it was low, low hanging fruit. Low hanging fruit. And, and you, you know, you got to do diligence. You got to grab it. But, you know, he did. But, and, and Joe called him on that. But luckily they got into the real beef of it. You know, you bump comics, you steal material. And then that wrecked Carlos's career. The next day, and again, it hit the trades. The video got out. Uh, Carlos was suing the, the comedy store band Joe Rogan for seven years. And, um, you know, it was a, a whole fiasco. Wait, R Rogan was banned for seven years? For seven years from the Whoa. comedy store. Because <laughs> they, say, they said he verbally assaulted another comic on stage, but it was just a thing. Uh, Carlos, you know, complained to his agent. I was with the same agent as Carlos at the time, the Gersh agency. And I even had to call my agent and be like, I had nothing to do with it. I mean, even some of the camera shots, because they're going around being like, Carlos is a thief, right? But I was young enough to know. I didn't, my, my name is Paul. That's between y'all. I got no fucking comment because that guy can still squash me. I'm just a cover booth kid at the time. Yeah, man, it, it, it was, it was awesome. And I, that happened before Kramer. Because I was working yeah. in the cover booth, so this must have been a year something before five. Uh, but he destroyed Carlos in in one night, and Joe took years to get to where he was after that. But now you see the disparity between the two; it's hilarious. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Areas. You know, Joe's arguably one of the most famous people on earth, and Carlos, a, a footnote who can maybe sell out the Ontario Improv. Yeah, I just always wonder where he went because you just really near, never really hear about him anymore. I know from the inside from Steve Trevino, a comedian who used to open for him and for you guys, that he never drank until all that. He like drank, he owes people a bunch of money, went to a dark place, as you could imagine he would. You know, that was a that was an embarrassing moment, but it was deserving. He was a joke thief, a blatant. The worst, like a horse thief in the old west, just the worst of the fucking worst, you know? Yeah, yeah. Joe was just saying the quiet part out loud. Yeah, and he could because he could kick everyone's ass. I mean, you have those two Marin episodes about it where it's like night oh, and day, yeah. and it's just yeah. kind of kind of like just a mind inside the mind of a, a sociopath. He is. He he was. He's a sociopath, narcissistic tendencies, all that. And 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 the sad thing was, he was a strong performer. He just he he. Flew too close to the sun, man. He, he he got too arrogant and thought he nobody mattered and he could take anybody's material. And again, the wall joke, everybody wrote that joke. But the Bill Cosby joke, I mean, my God, that he's you're he, he, like a cover comic at that point. You're basically taking a song and singing it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's these people so driven, and driven's not really the right word. They go, well, this will just get me up the ladder. It doesn't matter. I just need to kill every show. I'll do that by any means necessary. And there any means necessary is just stealing material. Yeah. They're like, it's like if a tech bro did comedy. That's what it's <laughs> like. You know, just squash them all, man. Excuse me. If the Kramer incident wasn't filmed, like something I heard, do you think he would have just been back doing sets around town? Because I heard he turned up the next night at the laugh back. <laughs> like he was yep. booked on the. And no one, like, even there, and this is what gets me, is, like, no one 
in the room at the Laugh Factory that night said, you know, maybe you shouldn't come back because he came back the next night, I heard. Yeah, apparently he did. Uh, It's kind of like the Seinfeld episode where George got fired, but he came back on Monday to pretend like it didn't happen. (laughs) Like, that's what he took a play from George Costanza on that one. I, Yeah, I think it was a different time back then. And had it not been on camera, it would have just been a story. And even if the people in the audience would have gone public with it, I don't know that people would have picked up on it. And people might have even still been like, it's a nightclub. It's a performance. He's Kramer. You know, that kind of thing. Whereas it might even sound like I wasn't defending him saying he's not a racist. I don't know what's in his head. I really don't. I never got that vibe from him. But when you throw that kind of tirade, I get you're trying to do a character, but I would never talk like that. And I'm half black and I have the past to. And I would just it's just weird to me. If anything, why do you need to go there? And why was that your instinct to go there? When, by the way, the hecklers were black people and, and black people are great audience members. If you suck, they'll let you know. But if you're good, they'll let you know. You know, I, I like that fairness in them. You know, if you suck, turn it up or get off the stage. But, you know, I don't think you're going to win hearts and minds with inward with a hard R multiple times and pitchforks. Yeah. And have you seen other comedians uh, not as famous as Kramer just totally implode their careers in one night? I've seen equally as famous ones do it. and Nobody caught it on camera. Yeah. Could we go down that avenue <laughs> without, if, if you feel comfortable with the, uh, not necessarily naming names, but maybe hinting? <laughs> equally as famous, equally as famous as a sitcom star and comedian uh, with a bit of a reputation. And uh, I saw him implode on stage so hard one night. He berated the audience, told them they were all idiots, that they didn't understand him. And Gosh. there was, there was a, like a mass. They wanted their money back. They were throwing things. They were asking me to go back out there and win them back over. I was like, fuck, I ain't getting the shit. I already did my job. Uh, it was bad. And, and he's 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 uh, he's got a reputation. And I'm, I'm a, I don't name names. You know, that's not what I'm going to do. But uh, I mean, Larry David used to do that in his stand back in his early days. But it's right. Larry David doing it. It's Larry it. David. He gets he, 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 all be the funny. comedians in the back of the room. You would just be die <laughs> yeah and he would be funny because he's funny you know larry david is born funny he knows himself but this this comedian it was a lot like kramer trying some art house shit that just wasn't going to go for this crowd you know they, they don't want to hear your 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 monologue with no punchlines of irony not going to work this is comedy it's boxing man you, you're disrespecting the audience i get it if this was some hip, hipster room and we were doing a hipster club in downtown la on a rooftop and you wanted to do that makes perfect sense but this is they all paid money to see somebody they know from television from a major 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 show and you do you do have an obligation to if you don't have your own audience to at least you know i don't want to say give them what they want but be a don't try the weird shit you're not Stephen wright you're not that good at it you know like the ones who shine the mitch hedbergs all these people that they were brilliant that's why and if you're not brilliant at that you're going to look foolish a data goals podcast it just you know you're there to entertain you you are holding a amplification stick in your hand and a spotlight <laughs> is on you. Your job yeah. is to make these people happy. And it's yeah. like if you if you keep that in your mind, you're gonna have a whole new perspective. But I think it's just like so kind of just narcissistic if you remove the audience from the equation. Yeah, I always thought it would be kind of funny if they set up drama clubs, just like a comedy club, but now you come up here and you make me cry. Same objective. You're trying to pull an involuntary response from me because that's what comedy is. You're, you, I don't get a choice of it. I'm going to laugh. It's an involuntary response. It's coming out of me. Same thing, make a cry club. And if you want to do that weird fucking monologue shit, go go do a Sophie's Choice monologue at the cry club and see if you can kill with tears. You know, I would love to see that actually happen. I'd go to the cry club. I've never been to a comedy club as an audience member in my life. I've seen shows other than Jody's show, really. But like I started stand up when I was 19. And I wasn't even old enough to get into clubs, so I only was allowed to go on stage and get the fuck out of the club. And so and this ne- was in uh, Texas. No, no, I was born in Texas, but I grew up in Arizona and California. Um, and so this was uh, I moved out to Cal back out to California when I was nineteen, and then started at the comedy store when I was twenty, and uh, always just worked there for as an employee for three years, learning. You just learn, learn, learn. Watch every single comedian. I even got to know George Carlin back then. He did a whole residency there, and so you just learn and watch and observe. And I would learn and see so many of the good, the bad, and the ugly. Even the bad comics could tell you what to do and what not to do, like just by 
I would see the mistakes they would make. I could see the ones that weren't honest. I could see the ones that were scared, you know, it, and it was it was such a great it was like I got to audit the greatest comedy club in the world for three years while doing comedy there. Tell us more about uh, your comedy history. Who were some of your first comedy heroes? I, I started young when, when when I was a kid. My parents listened to Richard Pryor all the time. And then Eddie Murphy came out like when I was like four, three or four. And my parents were pretty cool. They let me watch anything. So I was really into Eddie Murphy. And then I was into like, you know, I was an old soul and watched a lot of Nick at Night. So I like old timers like Bob Newhart. I liked Woody Allen a lot. I know you're not supposed to, but he was just goddamn brilliant. I liked um, um, uh, Robin Harrison. And then uh, George Carlin. And then as I got into stand-up, actually right before I got into stand-up, I, I really got into Chris Rock when he started to get big. And then I got to know him. And he was always my idol in that he was like a mentor who I was like, this is how you approach comedy. It's a real job. You know, no fucking around. You go up there and you do it. You get your reps in. And I did, I performed 5,000 times by the time I was 25. Just because of his ethic. His, his is like, this is, it takes a long time to get good. Put the hours in. And so I always worshipped him in that way. He was agenda driven, like comes up with a notebook, never bumps anybody, says yes, please. And thank you. And so I was always like, that's how if the number one comic in the world acts like that, who 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 the hell is the number 150th comic in the world to big time anyone, you know? And so he was somebody that I always kept. And I know Dave Chappelle and got to know him very early when I was 20. And I love him and think he's the greatest. But the, the work ethic, the 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 career path and the way he carries himself always Chris Rock for me and it's a New York work ethic it's it's New York comics it's just comedy store comics were a lot like New York comics and that this is serious fucking business we don't do anything else you know and, and in LA I mean I live in New York and you know there's these comics that do like a dozen shows in a night is that possible in LA to get uh, that kind of stage time at the comedy store, yeah, because we had three rooms. So just ah. in one club, I would do three shows or sometimes back-to-back -back shows in one room. And so you could, that's why comedy store comics were different because we got to do way more. And then on top of that, the Laugh Factory, the improv, my record, and you have to consider distance here, is the most recent, I did five clubs, the Ice House, West Side Comedy Theater, the Laugh Factory, the Comedy Store, and the Improv all in one night. You're not going to get 12 here. But you are going to get lengthier stage time here. And here you don't have to bark. Where in New York, you got to bark out in front of the clubs before you get started. And I was lucky to never have to do that. I worked the cover booth and was, I, I came in in May 25th, 2000, Mitzi Shore, the owner, she would just fire people just for nothing back then. Apparently I had walked in like, like to the OK Corral right after the shootout because literally just a bunch of fired motherfuckers. I'm like, you guys hiring? They're like, yeah, matter of fact, we are. I'm like, I'm only 20. They're like, that's cool. Come on in. And <laughs> it's been my comedy home ever since, but. And I even realized, too, she would fire people because she could see they weren't funny. Like yeah. I, I, she, I wish she would always go, they're not funny. And when I was like, how do you even know? You haven't even... She could tell. And and by funny, meaning you're not yourself. You're just not... I can't teach you to to, to be that thing that you're never going to be. I can teach you to have stage presence. I can teach you to, to pace. I can teach you all that. But if you're not funny... And, and you see it. You see comics show up who try to supplement it. And some can get famous not being funny. Sometimes you'll see a comic go, that guy's not funny. You know, sometimes the bigger the comic, like globally, the less appeal they have to a lot of people. And and, and by that, I mean, like Jeff Dunham's probably the top earner in comedy. Right. Would you, would you go see him at gunpoint? You know what I mean? Like, no, he's got puppets, you know? I'm acting like my friend Sebastian now. Puppets, this guy. you got puppets. But it's, it's so it's kind of like music. You know, the Backstreet Boys probably outsold the Beatles, but nobody's going to tell you the they're even one one hundredth of what the Beatles were. It's just when something reaches a very wide, wide global, especially with comedy, the comedy can tend to be a little more watered down to reach a global audience there. You have to lower the bar, like right. lower common denominator to broaden out, you know, an appeal like that. Not always yeah. the case, but you know, one of the time. the tent. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Broaden the tent. And I don't blame them. Go get that money. Like there's and then there's the rare ones like, you know, Jim Jeffries, I know he's he's a world comic and he's brilliant. Yeah. Bill Burr, same thing. There's world comics who actually are brilliant because they got the world to understand their point of view, you know. And then there's other ones who are just like catchphrase, catchphrase. Oh, catchphrase, catchphrase, <laughs> you know. Yeah. But there's a place for that. And then uh, two last questions. And I, I always love this on any comedy podcast. What was your all time worst gig? 
Oh, man. <laughs> my very first set as a paid regular at the comedy store in 2003, it was a Tuesday night, and usually the Tuesday nights were dead. And Mitzi had a rule that if there's six people or more, we're going to start the show. And so far, there was no people in the audience. And it was 9 p.m. 10 p.m. came around, and you know they called her to see if she wanted to call it. And so my buddy Rick Ingram, who just went on tour with Chris Rock, he goes, hey, man, I got some White Widow. You want to go smoke in the back? I was like, eh, it looks like the show's going to get canceled. Yeah, let's go smoke some White Widow. And I had never smoked White Widow. It's a strain what, what is of, White Widow? Well, it's a, it's a strain of, of weed that, that, and especially in California, you know, it's always been super potent. And this is very potent, very, you are extremely stoned weed. So I take the hit with him. I'm coughing. And now I'm, my head's floating away like a balloon. And the door guy comes out. He's like, hey, man, we just got six people showed up. You're on. And I'm the first one on. This is like your welcome to professional comedy. And it's like six old white dudes. And I'm back there, like my heart's like racing. And now I'm super stoned and they turn the lights off. And I've never gone on with the lights off because before you're a paid regular, you, you perform with the lights on. But they make you turn the lights off to really put you in a deer in headlights thing. And so I get up there and I got caught mouth. I'm like, hey. <laughs> I'm like that Chris Farley character. Like I can't even form a word. And so I, I'm getting into my little routine. I don't even know what I was doing at the time. And they're not feeling me, man. There's they're just six old white guys. They're ordering their drinks and talking to themselves. And I can just feel it growing in my head. I'm like, oh, no, I'm getting scared. And and I can't, I just can't connect with them. And then one guy goes, don't quit your day job. It's like, unfortunately, this was my day job. You yeah. know, I just got moved to night shift. And, and, and that made him laugh. But then I still got into like, I was able to eke out of there, do a couple of impressions and, and get them to step to not be cruel. You know, basically I sweat through that thing Ugh, so bad. And it felt like 75 minutes, even though it was only 15, you get the light at 12 minutes, but because I was stoned, but something happened and halfway through it, the stone wore off because the adrenaline right. got rid of it. And I, I started to get off and, and I even asked them, I go, where are you guys from? And they're like, Scotchdale. Rick, my lady's like, dude, you're from Arizona. You couldn't have connected on Scottsdale. <laughs> I'm from a town over in Arizona, and I couldn't even connect it on that because I'd been so repped. But I didn't help. I, I got through it. I, I did my first set. I kept the check from it. It was $15 for my first paper set, but it was hard. And and other than that, I've got to say in my career, I've not been heckled a lot of times. It's sort of an energy thing. You know, some people just have heckle me energy. I just don't. I guess, you know, people ask me for directions, ask me for the time. I'm that guy. Even if I rocked into a bank, it was like, everybody, give me your money. They're like, come on, get the fuck out of that here. That guy? Come on. Yeah, no, come on, guy. <laughs> and, and I've always been happy with that, though, because I, I don't want that trouble. I don't want trouble on stage, you know? But I have destroyed hecklers before, because after a while, I got to the point where it's like, you're going to try to rob me from this? You made a big fucking mistake. Because what comics don't realize is I could just go, your mom, your mom, your mom, and I'd win. But, you yeah. know, I'm not. I'm going to eviscerate you. But in a, in a humane way, too. I'm going to try to include you on the laugh. But if you get belligerent, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll abs I destroyed a guy so hard one time, he wanted to shake my hand afterwards. A black dude tried to come at me. Man, you ain't shit. I went black on him. I was like, you ain't shit, motherfucker. I would shine the light on him. He was dying. But it's... It's it's never have I had a thing where it made me go, I don't want to do this. As a matter of fact, when you do it, you go, this is I don't I don't want to say it's not arrogant. It's not I don't want to say it's not that hard. The the funny part is easy. The hard part is talking to strangers. But I've always been good. I think because I was a military kid, moved around a lot. And as you can tell, I can talk a lot. I, I've always been fine and comfortable talking to strangers. And so even my first time doing comedy, I was like, that was it? That wasn't that hard. I, I actually did really well my first time, which a lot of comics do because you, you're naive. You have nothing to compare it to. And so you're your most honest self. But then you start carrying around a notebook, wearing a blazer. You're like, I'm a comic. And then you bomb a thousand times because you think you got it figured out. And so, you know, but that's that growing stage you go through until you go back to that person you were on open mic. Just being like, hey, man, this is me. Got nothing to lose. And that's how stand-up is. Yeah, I, just, just so happy to be there. Yeah. I remember that from their early days. I'm just so happy to be on stage talking to this microphone. Yeah, I waited in line. This is fucking great. Hey, I know <laughs> yeah. that guy. Like, you're just, you're. it's it's a supportive environment. You know, even with the comics, is, is we like to watch each other bomb, but we like to watch each other kill, too. And so, um, 
but I think that the, the whole getting up thing and, and whether you bomb or kill, I, I, I never, I, I, that's never even an occurrence to me. Like re, when we were young, we wanted to kill all the time, but it's like when you get older, you're like, okay, killing is fine, but can you develop something new? Can you, you know, go to a new place, get, get, be willing to take licks for new material. That's what I see a lot of comics afraid to do. Like I used to do Edinburgh a lot and you have an hour show. And it's just like always like those moments where you could turn it to something serious and then bring it back. And right. then it's just like, and feel their attention there equally as hard as if they're all laughing. Right. And that's when you get, when you get into the long form comedy and headlining and I think that's when you uncover that, Oh, I don't have to go in there and we're not Navy seals. I don't have to yeah. go in there, murk the place and bounce out and go meet girls afterwards. Like you can go in there and go, wow, they, he gave me an hour of, perspective that i might not even agree with it but i was into it you know it was a show you're putting on a show and so i think that's what made me really like comedy was and now it's funny because you know i'm gonna do i'm gonna work with you guys on hopefully a special and i only go do stand-up now when i'm it's purposeful like <laughs> i did the comedy store the other night but i used to do it three times a night i would never even dream of not doing it but you know i'm 44 years old now I don't worry about the skill leaving me. I will have to go bang and get serious when I go, you know, get ready for a special. But it's, I almost look at it too. Like, you know, it's these, it's that 23 year old me's turn right now to have a spot in the main room right now at, at 10 30 PM, the, the cherry spot. I'm I'm not going to go take that from him because I don't need the money. And what's more is I, I can get right back there with a phone call, not a phone call. I'd have, you know what I mean? <laughs> but like, I don't believe in taking up those things every day because I I put those ten thousand hours in, and if yeah, I yeah, yeah, to... exactly. I was gonna say that you put in your Beatles ten thousand hours in Amber, right. and then it, you get it's like you know how to tap into that energy right off the bat. And... Right. I'm not gonna forget how to play the guitar, yeah. mate. You yeah, know? like like it's that that's that I might be a little rusty starting off. I'm I'm headlining a gig in La Jolla next week, I'm doing a whole new set, a whole new hour, and it's gonna be. I got a bomb. I'll, I'll get a lot of laughs, but it's not going to be cohesive. You know, it's not, yeah. but that that's what it's going to take to get to where it's going to be something really great. I think. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's just like excitement comes every time of just creating new material and yeah, where, where almost I feel like if I go back to old material, I'm just cheating. I always <laughs> look at me. like, it's just yeah. like, I know, I know I, that's already, I know that works. I'm like, a, what other I, avenues I can, can I explore? How can I, push something and I, again i work with all tech uh just I mean, even my solo shows and it's just like i want to build something where i can yeah. take time to build it at home and then i'm yeah. presenting it out to the world that's and then exactly you have those two minds of you know kind of my introverted mind of just building something on my by myself and then your show and tell when you bring it on my, stage that, that's how i always <laughs> approach comedy is i i will do it and i'll be very omnipresent in the clubs and then suddenly you don't see me for six months and, and I always treated this like a musician does, especially like a 70s rock musician. Like, this is an album. This means something to me. And I have to go out and have experiences in the world. I can't just be doing, just hanging out with comics every night, bro, smoking weed, getting up at <laughs> noon. You know, I want to go meet teachers. I want to go meet normal people who, who I want to have my finger on the pulse. And, and it was um, David Bowie. He would, every album, he would ride his bike through a different country, Germany, France. He'd live there, immerse himself in it and go, okay, let's, let's see what comes out. Yeah. And no, I'm not that status, but that's how I still approach this art form is that, no, you're not going to see me every night. You're not going to see me posting all my set. Here's my set from last night. Here's my set from tonight. I haven't even gone on yet. Like, okay, okay. This is yeah. an herbal life, man. This is art, you know? Yeah. Uh, but, you know, we love Picasso because he, he churned out a painting a minute. That was great, but he was also a legend. But if you oversaturate to me, that's, you're taking away from yourself at that point, you know? Stupid. Everybody's so stupid. Just lastly, any other takeaways from your your moment with Michael Richards to you know your whole history of comedy or you know just being there that night and once again the last person to bring Michael Richards on stage as a comedian ever. You know, I I'll, I'll, I'll forever be connected to Seinfeld, and uh, that that makes me feel pretty good. Um, yeah, yeah, man. It was just one of those things that happened that it, it, you you forget sometimes because you live in this little bubble in Hollywood. You know that TMZ stands for Thirty Mile Zone, and it's a very small block, Doheny to Sunset, Highland to to Wilshire, and 
things happen in this block that affect the globe, you know? And that was kind of a reminder, even by then I'd been in Hollywood for six years that, oh, these, these things that happen in these little neighborhood that I live in, they make the news. And, you know, things you say, things you do, you know, the, the infamy thing I had never seen up close. Now I'd seen it a few times with a few comics I know were canceled, done, and and it's 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 scary. It's and I don't want to say scary like I know I've never done the things they've done, but it's scary to see, you know, how somebody could build something so big that he did, and and in one terrible set at the Laugh Factory just destroy it. And I think the only reason Seinfeld went to save his butt because it was about to go to DVD. The like DVD was about to be released. Yeah. It's like I could just hear that conversation. Going. We yeah. got to save the DVD sales. Yeah. You went and dropped the N-bomb. On the, oh. So I, I, I think that's probably, it's almost like, uh, you know, having ordered, you know, like taking Lee Harvey Oswald's order before he went to the book suppository. Like, you know, like, give me a sandwich. Uh, make that to go, though. I'm going, you know, like it was like, oh, I was. I or selling him the movie tickets when he went yeah. into the movie theater. There you Dallas. go, as well. There you go. Enjoy yeah, the enjoy show. The sure. <laughs> enjoy the picture show. Yeah. Is that blood? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's 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 fun to see those little connectivities in history. And I got, you know, a, a million more stories like that. Of, of, I've been at ground zero of some crazy crazy happenings that i just uh, maybe i'll write a book someday if i never get as big as i think i should get maybe i'll just write a book and, and do a tell-all but uh yeah a lot of names you know who've uh and not not dirt not bad things just, yeah you know on on seen things happen heard things said that just like it, it, it's almost like a, a cop probably doesn't regret being a cop like oh i've seen some crazy shit that's kind of like comedy like they say don't go into it and i don't recommend you do but you're going to see some crazy shit coming up, you know? Well, Freddie, thanks so much. Love the stories. Love chatting with you. And thanks so much for being on the Comedy History 101. Well, thanks for having me on. Appreciate it, Armin. All right. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. And with that, we wrap up our episode on the history of Michael Richards' meltdown. And once again, remember to take time to like, subscribe, and comment on Comedy History 101, wherever you get your podcasts. Also remember on Thursday, August 17th, 7 p.m. at Young Ethel's, I'll be producing my show, That 80s Improv Challenge, as well as on Wednesday, August 30th, Comedy Bites, AI versus Human Roast Battle at Crystal Lake in Brooklyn. And until next time, bye-bye. You're stupid. Everybody's so stupid. I'm trying to use the phone! Excuse me! Comedy History 101.